Well, hello there, Todd. Good morning. Oh, no, I can't <laughs> help it. I love it so much. The, the singing is getting beltier and beltier yes, and beltier. I hope it just, I wanted to get longer as well. So, but you know, this, that was a good. Speaking intro. of belting, I have to tell you what I did this oh week, my which, God. which is actually a moment. I went in for uh, a production of Grease out here in Los Angeles. And it was my first in-person audition, in-person audition since COVID. Wow. And it was so, it was such a moment, Laura, because I didn't realize that how much, how much I had missed yeah. going and, 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 and the art there, auditioning is a separate art to performing. Oh, yeah. It is a completely separate craft. You have to, you know, you have to see the room, take in the room, be present with those people and then drop into that as if reality immediately. Yeah. And it's, it's not like a, a show where you have, you know, two hours to get to where you need to be yeah, by the end yeah. of it. You have to sort of just drop in immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, almost like when you're doing film and I, I gotta tell you, it was such a wonderful experience because, I just, I, I, this, this freaking COVID has just, it's, yeah. it's been, you know, it stopped everything. So now I've got, I've got performing is back and now auditioning is back. So I actually, now I feel like COVID is starting to come to a halt, even though it's not, even though I it's not, still, it's coming back, but it's fine. It's coming back, but I just feel like, okay, we, we, we can get back in rooms together. I yeah. mean, they did, we, we did have to wear our masks in the waiting room. We had to wear our masks until I, until I went up to sing. It would be very um, awkward though, if they'd made you wear the mask. Well, they are singing. doing that in rehearsals. They make everyone wow. wear in theater. They're making everyone wear masks during rehearsals. And then you have to get tested. Um, the, you know, when you take them off, you have to get tested every day. Do they like mic you up underneath the, the mask in, though? In How tech, are you going to hear? Yeah. In rehearsals. Really? It's, yeah, in rehearsals. Wow. In the actual shows, no. But when you're backstage, even on Broadway, they're doing that. Wow. They're, yeah. So And so what were you up to this week? Well, I am, you know, as I keep doing, just trucking along with this Dancing with the Stars. With the stars. It's gotten even more intense. I mean, now we're getting up to like, you know, I'm coming up on a month away almost here from it. And how are, how's learning the dances going? I mean, I'm... Um, I, let's just say I'm really glad that it's about raising money for a good cause. No, I'm, I'm actually doing pretty well. I'm, I'm actually, but I'm getting sore. Like now it's to a point where we're doing this choreography and it's, you know, like almost two hour long classes twice a week. Right. And, you know, we're doing these dip sits and I'm, you know, balancing on one leg, but and a lot of it is in no way my my instructor's fault or even the dancing fault is just that I will instinctively try to, you know, like hold myself up in like one position or right. I will be doing it in an, uh, some move or a spin in an incorrect way. And I'm like, this is impossible. How do people do it? And then he'll be like, okay, that's see, that's not a thing. That's not physically. Right. You can't do it that way. That's right. why we don't do it that way. So I'm learning right. a lot about the, the styling and the, and how to, make like physiologically how to dance which is crazy because I thought that I kind of could dance before this right so but it's it's a really fun journey I say we're we're getting really close to having the total choreography 
completely down. And then we start really focusing on styling, which is like shampooing your hair and doing these moves and all these like. And this is the this is the local chapter Dancing with the Stars for Charity uh, in Charleston, South Carolina. And where can people find out about it? They can go to our website and go to About Me. And there's a link to my Instagram and everything that has my link tree that you can see everything about. So that's nextpagepodcast.com. Yes, www. Oh, that's also a big (laughs) thing too. So www.nextpagepodcast.com. You can find um, about me, our link tree. I kind of just put it everywhere or just go to American Lung Association of South Carolina. But that is a big thing too. We also launched our website like our new we and did. improved and it looks it's so, good thank you to branding for broadway artists miha yes, he's wonderful miha is awesome and and i do want to let everybody know because i've i've gotten a little bit of feedback that some people don't notice that on the right hand side there's a moving icon and it says tune in and then you can just click that and you can listen to us right on our website you can so i you mean can. We, whatever you want to do we're here for however you can get <laughs> our voices into your head we're okay with it. Just but. listen, 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 listen. Now, speaking of podcasts, today we have such an amazing guest. Oh my God, so good. So Can good. you tell us about, um, yes. we are, we're interviewing today Dr. Peter Kalivas. Yes, who is a neuroscientist that I've actually known for quite some time because I'm friends with his uh, children. However, he has graciously agreed to, to sit down with us and talk about all of his amazing work. He did a really good job, I think, in this of keeping it very understandable because yes. the stuff that he is studying is so or, or that doing scientific studies about is like if you read it online it is so over <laughs> my head that yeah. it, it's almost impossible but he is really good at we go there other. though we got into addiction and, and artificial intelligence oh, yeah and they're coming uh, for it. it's and, coming for you well guys. everything's you know and 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 dopamine and what is the gluta glutamate Glutamate. I mean, there are so many things that we got into that were so interesting, yet like to find out how the brain works in response to addiction to drugs, in response to addition, uh, you know, a response to trauma. It was super, super interesting. Yeah. And, and as we know, we, 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 we do love talking to people about their personal experiences and, and overcoming them. But, you know, sometimes it is it, it just really good to hear about this stuff. From, from an horse, expert. Yeah, from an expert. Exactly. And he is the epitome of an expert. So I'll go ahead and, and, and read his little bio here for all you guys. So as a neuroscientist, Dr. Kalivas has focused on the cellular mechanisms and brain circuitry mediating brain and behavior disorders, particularly in research to elucidate, see what I'm saying, all the big words, elucidate the brain molecules and neurocircuitry that underlie addiction, including addiction to alcohol and cocaine. He moved from Washington State University to take on the position of Chair of Neuroscience at Medical University of South Carolina in 1998, where he and his colleagues continue to investigate the cellular and molecular underpinnings of the brain circuits, mediating addiction and also schizophrenia. So without further ado, introducing Dr. Peter Clivus.
Well, good morning, Peter Kalivas, Dr. Peter Kalivas. Good morning. Good morning, Laura. Welcome. Hey. Yeah, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. And we also looking forward to it. Yeah, we also obviously have Todd here, and we are so excited to talk to you today. This is a more intellectual, I think, kind of conversation than some of our other ones. I mean, I'm I know that you're very good at. I won't say dumbing it down, but, you know, explaining things to people. You are, after all, uh, a teacher at times, right? Yeah, yeah. I've been yeah. a teacher for 40 years. So. Yeah, but if, uh, we were just talking about the fact that if there is anything that we don't understand, we will ask to clarify because this is some, uh, you know, you, you work with some really awesome just studies and, and lots of big words. So we're going to do <laughs> yeah, our best. Yeah, do, do not hesitate. I, you know, the whole point is to, to communicate. Yeah, so for sure. So uh, don't well, jump in. If I if I start rambling in ways that don't make any sense, you got to tell me. Okay. Well, let's start by, can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and what brought you to Charleston from Washington State? Sure. Yeah, I, I grew up in L.A., um, in the San Fernando Valley, right, right near where you are, Todd. <laughs> and um, left right after high school. Uh, Found my way up to Washington State to go to college. Did a, a, a sort of growing up stint for a year, traveling around uh, South America when I finished college. And then um, went to graduate school at the University of Washington. Did a postdoc in Chapel Hill. So, you know, there's research that you do. You don't really become a full full-blown independent scientist right away after your PhD. You have to do a little more research. And so I did that at, at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. They went back to Washington um, after a quick stop in New Orleans, for where, which was my first faculty job at LSU, and then went back to Washington State, uh, where we were for, uh, gosh, I think 14 years, and uh, <clears throat> decided to move to yeah. Charleston, there was this really interesting opportunity. Yeah, go ahead, Laura. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I remember that when I started high school, Ben and Will, your your sons that are my friends, had just moved from Washington. So they were, we were like, oh, these are aliens. Right. They were the new kids. Like, tell us about the West Coast. West Coast. So I've, I've been, I've been uh, curious why you made that decision, that move here. Yeah. You know, it was basically, I was at Washington State University and it was, um, it was limited. So I couldn't really develop the program that I wanted to. And, you know, it's science is actually very competitive, as you probably aware. And I was watching people kind of my people that were part of my peer group moving ahead faster, especially technologically than I was able to in my lab. And so started looking around and MUSC had just this sort of once in a lifetime opportunity to start essentially start a department of neuroscience. So at the time there weren't a lot of department of neurosciences. So this would have been 1998. Wow. And it was a fantastic opportunity really. And so I came in took over an old department of physiology, renamed it. And, you know, we grew up from there. Wow. And so that, that the move was for that. And, you know, I will say that it was, um, we wanted to get the, the children, the boys you mentioned and our daughter, Allie into a larger environment. So we were in a small town of about 3000 just outside of uh, where the university was, which was a fantastic place to bring the kids up when they were little, a lot of camping and things like that. And once they grew up, it was all kind of sports 
And we want it to just be in a, in a um, culturally uh, more rich environment for the kids. And so we moved here. And as you know, they got into the academic magnet and uh, had a nice, challenging uh, high school career with you. Yeah. And it was, you know, that, that, and that actually is why we are here today, because I would not uh, know you if that hadn't happened. So, you know, God works. I remember one time talking to you and you said, uh, you know, yeah, I think my, I think our class is just going to take over Charleston. I did not. (laughs) Did I really say that? That was a long time ago, Lord. Wow. Well, what's interesting, (laughs) it's interesting I would say that because they're also a class above me. So I put myself in their class. Like I basically became. Yeah, I always thought you were. I didn't realize that. Yeah, Yeah. no, I was always, uh, they were all a year ahead of me. So it became very awkward when senior year came around and all the lunch, like you always had sections you, you ate in. And then, like, all the seniors get to take over what they call, like, the senior, uh, I don't know, I don't even remember what it was called, but it was basically the, the entire lobby of the of the school. And you weren't allowed in. Like, literally, strict, no younger people whatsoever. So I would just gaze through the windows and be like, there are my friends. Longingly, I can't be there, yeah. I know. But, it, you know, lots of fun. I feel like I met a lot of good people. And in a way, I think we will, we are running Charleston. Todd and I talk about this often. Like he actually went to school of the arts, which was, you know, right around the corner and sure. uh, a lot of overlap there. So, you know, we currently are, <laughs> if you think about it. So I, I stand by my statement I don't remember making. But um, <laughs> other than that, let's just go ahead and hop right into it. Like how, how and why did you decide to get into neuroscience? And as the head of neuroscience at MUSC, what do you do exactly? How I got into it is I was always one of those kids with a microscope, right? You know, so I grew up with a, a, a strong interest in how the world worked got out my dad bought me a microscope when i was little and so that went on and then uh late high school puberty happened and sex drugs and rock and roll happened and i got you know deviated a little bit from like the the hard science but towards and the that, end no, of wait, uh, that's what i want to talk about i know let's talk about that actually it's more of a soft science <laughs> I said, yeah, like sociology, stuff like that. Yeah. No, I, I actually went to um, uh, like Huxley College, which was a the, one of the very first, if not the first, Huxley College of Environmental Studies up in, in Washington. So I was interested in that kind of science. Um, but then, uh, you know, I just started reading more about the brain, probably uh, the, you know, mind-altering drugs made me realize how how really sensitive the brain was, how sensitive our perspectives were to just simple molecules. And so that I got out and just went back and got a degree in biology with an intention of going on to be a neuroscientist. So that, that revelation of neuroscience came as a combination of kind of who I was to start with, but also just realizing that this is a big problem is how the brain works and having the hubris to think that, oh, I can make a difference. I can, I can help solve this, you know? So that's off I went in the neuroscience. So that's sort of what led you to studying like specifically addiction. Like what was, I think, I think I gravitated around addiction, you know, in part because my PhD was in pharmacology, which is drugs, Mm -hmm. Um, but also because, you know, I'd had a lot of uh, experiences through college that uh, I was, that intrigued me. And I realized that it's it's kind of a um, 
a doorway into the brain. If you take a drug that affects your brain's function, you know, and you do it, let's say, in an animal model, uh, like you're studying what what is this, what's this system in the brain doing? If you take a drug that can bump that system, you know, activate it or inhibit it, you can actually study it. Then it's hard to study the brain just being the brain. Yeah, it's like you have to you have to make it do something in order to see it and to really study it and measure it. Um, we're getting better at that. You know, there's some technologies that have developed over the last decade that are allowing us more and more is that to be able EEG's, to just look at uh, the brain. EE, is it EEGs? Yeah, EEGs are, um, and then that's uh, in its original form, that's kind of an old technology, but it's been amped up to the point where, yeah, you look at you can look at activity in different parts of the brain. Probably more familiar to everybody is the functional magnetic resonance imaging. Mm-hmm. So MRI, only you do it functionally. So you can actually look at the different brain areas as they use oxygen. So you can get a sense of which brain area, if I'm meditating, which brain area is being activated. If I'm trying to solve a problem, a math problem, which whoa, brain whoa, whoa, whoa. is. Whoa, I'm so sorry to interrupt. Meditating? So you can see what the brain is doing while you're meditating? Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you meditate inside the scanner, sure. Yeah. So is it the same kind of scanner as you would do a traditional MRI in, or is it different because. Yeah. yeah. What? Yeah, you, you get, you get slid into it, machine. you slide into it and it makes a lot of noise, Yeah. but there it's, it's a functional MRI. So you're actually watching the brain work. It's not just a structural MRI, which is what therapeutically most people are familiar with. They tear up their knee, they go in and get get it yeah. scanned to see. And so this is functional. So it, you're actually in real time, you can watch the brain working as either in rest, or if you give it a problem, or you ask the person to think about some emotional situation, and you can watch the parts of the brain that appear to be most active during those. And of course, there's some consistency between you, me and everybody else. If I think sad thoughts versus really exciting thoughts, or if I meditate, you know, the it'll be similar brain areas that, that become activated. So, you know, you do this to 20 or 30 people and you start getting an idea of how the brain is handling certain states of consciousness or certain activities that the brain might go through. It's fascinating. Which I'm also amazed that South Carolina was in, in any way the forefront of a neuroscience department's but when you came here to do that, did they kind of just give you free reign to like study whatever parts, uh, you know, like the, you know, you want, you were interested in addiction and we know you also, you know, studied, like study some schizophrenia and behavioral, behavioral disorders disorder. and stuff like that. Was that like a, they're like, just go for it, like do whatever you want to do. Or was that kind of what they were looking for to begin with? Yeah. So it's academic science. And so you really are like a small business person. You get your grants and you do what you want to do, what you think, you know, and it's still, it, you have to sell what you're doing through publications or public speaking. Um, and you build your group and you try to get as much money as possible in grants to, to build it as big as you want to solve the problems or the questions or try to solve the questions that you're interested in. And so, so you're, you know, you're absolutely right. Mine was addiction. Yeah. Tom. When you go through the, that process, do you, are you like, 
on behalf of MUSC or whatever, whatever you're, you're, you're acting on behalf of them to say, MUSC has said, they've given me the green light to come to you to ask you for this grant to do this research. Does that how it works? Um, MUSC has to agree to accept the money. Okay. Ah. So they, oh. they act oh, as wow. the middleman. So if I get a, you know, a million dollars from the National Institute of Health, it doesn't come to me. Yeah. It goes to <laughs> MUSC. MUSC takes their share of, you know, there's a, right now it's approaching 50%. So, you know, a third of all the money that comes for my grant, MUSC keeps to, to run the labs, keep the lights on. Right. Um, et cetera. You know, it's a, it's a necessary charge that the university has. Then I purchase things through MUSC or I hire people for the lab and MUSC is ultimately responsible for them. The ideas that we pursue are entirely uh, mine and the other people in my lab, you know, so it's, um, they don't, they don't mess with that at all. Unless, unless I really started doing you know, something unethical, yeah. which um, you get you some know, agency, like some autonomy as far as what you want to focus on and all that, which is, which is good. No, there's a belief that uh, you hire the, you hire scientists in academia to let them be creative. And that's, that's the sort of that side of science, often the less applied, Yeah. you know, we're, we're not going to make an iPhone in my lab. We're not, they were not that structurally organized. We're trying to figure out how the brain works and we're using addiction as a vehicle to understand how the brain works because we can change the brain so profoundly structurally and functionally with addictive drugs. And so it's a way to move the brain and then we can see how it's been moved. And um, it gives us a sense of how the brain works. So that's the, that's, you know, we collaborate with other people for both techniques and, and just we're interested in the same questions. And so, you know, it's you, but it's, it's, it's like a small, it's a small business. Yeah. I I guess it's just crazy. I never thought of like addiction as being something to like almost, I don't want to say beneficial, but a, uh, in some ways a benefit. Yeah. Gateway to, to understanding how the brain works as a whole, which, I assume is the ultimate goal to fix those kind of situations. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of leads us to like, you know, can you tell us a little bit about the studies and stuff that you have performed with that grant money and, and how that journey to basically ultimately uncovering kind of what happens in the brain to cause addiction and alcohol and cocaine, as well as, you know, any other substances you'd like to mention. I'm not sure which ones exactly. Do y'all just, throw them all out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. I mean, we, uh, one of the, the ways we validate that something might be related to addiction is we use different, we addict animals to different drugs. And if it's this, the same change in the brain by all the addictive drugs, but not a, a natural reward. So we would typically use sucrose, you know, little sucrose pellets, rat can press the lever or if it's a mouse, they nose poke, they stick their nose in a little hole and a pellet comes down or they get an intravenous injection of uh, the drugs we typically work with are cocaine, heroin, nicotine, and um, cannabis. And so we, yeah. And those are the ones that that our rats tend to go up on. Mm -hmm. Um, Cannabis is less 
produces less of the big brain bumps, changes yeah. in the brain than, than the other drugs I just mentioned. Yeah. Um, so not surprisingly. That's how we kind of validate it. And then if sucrose doesn't do it, then we assume that natural rewards are not, this is not something that's related to the natural reward process. This is related to the addiction process. Okay. So the drug seeking prior process, not the seeking out Milky Way bars in your refrigerator or something like that. That's normal. The brain, you know, activates to do that, but it comes back. Yeah. It doesn't stay out there with addictive drugs. The brain, it gets pushed into another state basically. And you may not, you might not notice that there is another state till the person encounters environmental stimuli or thoughts that remind them of the drug. And then it will induce this internal motivation. People call it craving. You mean this like a, high, a recall, like a recall of exactly. the- Exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a type of memory. Absolutely. And that can activate certain things. The brain is primed by the drugs because of the effect that the drugs have pharmacologically on the brain that those cues will activate the brain in a way that it kind of, it can push out seeking other natural rewards. And so pretty soon all you're doing is thinking about, I've got to get the drug. So is it kind of like carving a what, like a pathway in your brain? Like, is that something like, I don't know, I'm almost imagining that when your brain kind of gets taken over by trying to get that drug back, you consider that like permanent or is it something that's like, can change if you could kind of explain what from what you've learned from these rats i've watched some of your your lectures as far as with the cocaine a big thing that you you talk about is like self-extinction and and like far as how they have recall or memory even though it's been however long since they had cocaine in them they will a, a cue will start that but what was like the biggest what, what's kind of the biggest takeaway from that as far as addiction goes Let's just back up because it's always uh, relevant to compare it to natural okay. rewards. You know, I mean, we're programmed to experience rewards. And, you know, we've worked out some of the circuitry over the years to which pathways are most important in organizing an animal to go get a reward or to stay away from something that's bad. You know, in other words, important stimuli mm -hmm. for survival. You got to get food and you got to stay away from predators, you know, so that's those things involve very similar circuitry, but the memories, of course, are different that are associated with those. You can basically the brain changes when you when if a rat smells a fox, the brain will change in response to that, but it it comes back mm -hmm. to where it was. And now you're ready to do the next thing. Or maybe you do two things at once. I really want that pellet, but there's a fox over there. You know, should I go get it now? Or, you know, and it's the brain is very flexible and it can entertain a lot of rewarding stimuli at once. What happens with drugs is it changes the rules of that brain plasticity. So now you've got the brain who go that you go, oh, you know, that's that's important, that food pellet. And, uh, you know, the rattle orient to it. But now there's also a cue that tells the rat that cocaine is available. So that cocaine cue will produce a type of plasticity, in essence, blocks out or really dampens the motivation for the food 
and the rat will orient towards the drug. So a, a human example is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm finishing work like five o'clock. I get a call from a buddy who's just flown in to Charleston airport. And he says, Hey, I'm in town. We're all getting together at the bar, you know, maybe your place. Yeah. We're all getting together yeah. at the beer garden. And he, you know, remember last time we were there and all the good beer they had. So he starts queuing me up, mm-hmm. right? He starts telling me stuff that reminds me of what a great time it was all very much associated with alcohol, all the whole conversation. And, you know, I decide, sure, I'm going. And then, uh, you know, Sue, who you know is my wife, calls me and says, hey, I'm going out with my friends tonight. You have to come home. And in my case, it would be grandkids. Take care of the grandkids and, you know, make sure they do their homework, something like that. So now I I have a decision to make. I've got two very important stimuli, beer and friends and Sue and and my grandkids. All right, so what am I going to do? Well, you, better you know Sue. Sue. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. If you know Sue, you know I'm going home. Yeah. Right. There's no question about that. Right. No. So I've, I've that. But if I was, if I suffered from alcohol use disorder, what would happen is I would think about both of those, but I would gravitate and gradually I would just go back to thinking about the alcohol. And my friends and the whole kind of situation, my the input from Sue, the motivational relevance of it would fade. And, you know, depending on how addicted I am, I might at first just say, well, you know, that's important for sure, but I'm just going to go and have one beer and then go home. Okay, so that would be a person who's, you know, pretty addicted probably, but not if a person's seriously addicted, you know, that they've been doing it for years and years, uh, they've been, you know, abusing alcohol, they might not even come up with that kind of cognitive rationale. They won't need it. You know, they'll just be so overwhelmed with the desire to get the drug. That's what happens is it creates another term for it that we use. It's what we call a transdiagnostic term, meaning it's a symptom in a lot of psychiatric disorder. So in addiction, we call it craving. The person just gears themselves up to, with thinking about the drug to where that's all they wanna do. PTSD, we call it intrusive thinking. So a person who has PTSD, let's say from rape or from combat, they suddenly get in a situation that reminds them of the rape or the, or the combat and they start having intrusive thoughts it's a trigger that, that causes this, these intrusive right. thoughts. Okay. But when they have the intrusive thoughts, they can't really think about other stuff, you know, other, other things that are important. They can't stop thinking about it and it makes them very extremely anxious and they have PTSD. Depression. One of the features of many people who have major depression is they ruminate. So they start thinking about something negative and they can't stop. And so it's all of these kinds of things share similar brain changes. Wow. Wow. You know, because, but not addiction. Addiction is a lot of things besides craving. Yeah. But the, these you know, things so have like. But that, that trait, yeah, yeah, that trait is shared by a number of psychiatric disorders. Yeah. And it's, um, we stumbled on that. You know, we were merrily going on our way, um, looking inside of rat brains, trying to figure out how things have changed. And we made some discoveries of uh, 
of a protein that was changed in the brain that was important for, you know, how especially this one pathway would work. And we knew that that pathway can regulate drug seeking in our, in our rats. If we stimulate it, they'll seek. If we inhibit it, they won't respond to the drug cue. So we knew we had some, that, that we were in the right spot and we had this protein that was regulating that. And it turned out that there was a, uh, a compound that was already being used clinically that acted on that protein. And nobody really thought of this protein as being involved in, in substance use disorder. But in fact, it, it, it was in our animal models. And so this compound is just, it's a very simple compound. It's N-acetylcysteine is what it's called, or people call it NAC. You can buy it in a health food store. You know, we basically rushed over to psychiatry and said, hey, we've got this compound that stops rats from, from craving in our animal model. It doesn't affect sucrose, but it affects cocaine and heroin wow. were the drugs that we'd done at that time. And, you know, the psychiatry is actually one of the reasons I moved to MUSC is psychiatry before I got there was already one of the strongest psychiatry departments in terms of research in the country. It was one of the top 10 mm -hmm. and their focus or one of their major foci was substance use research and mostly and very clinical. You know, so they were they were you know, big, one of the biggest clinical trial places in the country for substance use. So anyway, I went over and they were very excited about this possibility because it's very unusual to have a, a really strong biological linkage when you try something. And back then in particular, this would have been 15 years ago, a little more than 15 years ago. And so, you know, they tried it and it worked. So wow. the cocaine use disorder subjects didn't crave how you do it is you show them slides and so some slides are of lines of cocaine or you know crystals or dollar bills rolled up other slides are of doorknobs and you know wall sockets and things that are not would not likely induce craving what we do is you allow the person to stay on a slide for up to 20 seconds they have the ability to change if they if they're bored by the slide and they just want to see what the next slide is. And, but it will automatically change after 20 seconds. So what you find is that they stay close to the full 20 seconds on the cocaine slides, but they switch off very quickly off of doorknobs and light bulbs and things like that. So in theory, what this means is that cocaine slides are more motivating, more motivating to them. They're more interested in them. Knack blunted that. So oh it made gosh. the cocaine slides a lot more like the doorknobs watching some of your stuff on YouTube and it kind of sent me down a, a YouTube spiral that I tend to go down a kind of a vortex. And one of the things they were talking about was how that, that was the first I heard of it was this morning, honestly, of, of knack, but that that kind of treats this concept of glutamate disruption. Is that it? Or disorder, like kind of, so could you explain to everybody kind of what glutamate is and why it is so important? in the brain and, and in this, these studies? Sure. Yeah, no problem. Everybody's heard about dopamine, right? Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that's, that's been out in the lay world for, it's been on the cover of Newsweek for 20 years. And dopamine was discovered a, quite a while ago to be critical for experiencing reward. Yep. Also critical for experiencing stress um, or a negative thing. In other words, it's salience. So if dopamine is released when you experience something, it becomes more important to you. 
And all addictive drugs, some a lot better than others, like cocaine, opioids, are really good dopamine releasers. Cannabis and alcohol, not as good. You know, they do, but it's not not as much. That drives people to think that it's a, it's a very positive event. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of cocaine, there's often kind of a positive stress kind of feeling yeah. to it, you know, because people are kind of keyed up. And so some people actually don't have good experiences on cocaine because it's more of the stress that they experience rather than the, the rewarding sensation. Bottom line is that's all dopamine. Dopamine is, is very necessary for that. It reinforces the drug-seeking behavior. So yeah, I, I, I'm going to take this. I'm going to take this drug. And so pretty soon, the more you take it, the more you're associating things in your world with dopamine. And so now, you know, I've associated my, I've been using cocaine for so long. I associate my car with cocaine. I associate my bedroom with cocaine. I associate my five best friends with cocaine. And so whenever I see any of those things, it's going to click in my brain that, you know, this is, this is drug and this is important. What happens with sucrose or a natural reward, say a Milky Way bar, is they will release dopamine but it's a quick little squirt and it comes back down. If you take, you know, a bite of uh, Milky Way bar and you get your little squirt and then you take another one and the squirt gets smaller each time to where pretty soon, you know, your brain knows how to like what the Milky Way bar is. It knows how to get it. And it doesn't, you don't need the dopamine anymore to sort of amp you up because you learned how to get the Milky Way bar. So it, it facilitates learning about how to get stuff or stay away from stuff. So with cocaine or any of the addictive drugs, it goes up further than is possible physiologically. And it stays up longer and it goes up every time. So if I, you know, do cocaine once every hour, I'm going to get a big giant squirt of dopamine every single time. My brain, every time I do cocaine, is saying something really important just happened to you. And so learn about the world around you because you're going to want to either get it again or you're going to want to stay away from it. In other words, it's given that motivational uh, salience. Mm -hmm. And that's how you become addicted. But now, now you're addicted. So now you're a substance user and you're away from the compound and now you get the call from the guy at the bar or the guy who just landed at the airport going back to my old story. Now it's glutamate. Now this is where glutamate takes over because glutamate is the main brain transmitter that communicates excitation around the brain. The, the entire brain uses it and glutamate in the pathway that leads you to seek drug or that leads you to do any kind of work, stay away from drug, whatever, that, that motivational pathway, there's glutamate is in there and it's been coded to match the things you've learned. So now this whole pathway is kind of coded very heavily for your drug and your drug experiences. So now, you know, I get the phone call and I'm talking to the person and they're talking about all the nice IPAs that they have. That's all like this glutamate pathway is being activated. And then there's, there's been changes in the glutamate pathway such that when it signals 
about how important this is and about going to get the drug, you get a lot of changes in the brain that you don't get from a natural reward ever. And those changes, in essence, kind of take over that part of the brain and essentially mute other motivationally relevant stimuli so that you it's just you and going to get your drug and that's yeah. kind of all that's left in your consciousness so that's glutamate wait so to break that so when people break substance abuse it's truly a feat because your brain has basically been rewired by these substances yeah. and you have to sort of jump back in and rewire it on your own accord even though everything the glutamate and the what was the other one? The um, dopamine is just well, dopamine, but it's like, that's what's so fascinating is that dopamine is like just such a small fraction of that. Like that, that's what you, you from what I'm kind of gleaning from you're talking about this is that it's almost like that's the reward process that, that will get you there. But then the glutamate takes over and now your brain is just, it's changed. The glutamate is, is, is the system that, you've that you it's your memory and your recall system that allows you to learn how to get important things or how to stay oh, away wow. from okay. negative things and if it's all working normally all these things can compete and you come up with the adaptive behavior this it's a balance of the positive and negative in the world around you and then you make your course of action if you are suffering from substance use disorder and now you've learned very heavily a lot of your pathway is cued into this drug and so when you start getting memories about the drug that pathway just subserves the drug now you don't have as much of an ability to compete mm -hmm. this is why you know in alcoholics anonymous one of the things you're supposed to do when you start craving the drug call your partner and get them to start talking to you so you stay you kind of stay stay alert and conscious and they can talk to you about you know what you're feeling and so you never kind of go you don't allow yourself to go down the rabbit hole you don't your craving doesn't become intrusive okay and it doesn't start taking things over so that's you know that's that's kind of the, the basis of it and so the compound that we were talking about normalizes mm -hmm. it actually normalizes a a part of this system and it basically, because one of the things that causes the system to be changed is glutamate leaks out of the synapse and it starts affecting other synapses when it shouldn't, it should, it should just be yeah. kind of point to point communication, but it spills out and it starts taking over other things. And of course that glutamate is coded to the drug. Right. And one of the things that the drug does in this brain area, all addictive drugs that we've looked at and others, is it downregulates this, this protein that normally gets rid of glutamate that spills out of the synapse. And so now it can spill out a lot more freely. Okay. And so this compound, NAC, and there's other ones that can do it as well, restores that protein, that transporter, so that now glutamate is more effective, or the, the brain is more effective at eliminating the glutamate that's been released. And wow. it dampens, it, it, it helps, it, well, it, it dampens the intrusive nature. So you're you're still coded for the cue. You know that you're getting a cocaine cue and you know what it means and you know what the pathway should be. But it, it, if you're trying to quit, you can control it better because the glutamate's not spilling all over the place. It becomes just like a more, a more natural reward that you can regulate your seeking of it. 
and we'll be right back after a few words from our sponsors. Eternus is all about you. Eternus Life Coaching is all about partnering with clients in a thought-provoking and creative process that inspires them to maximize their personal and professional potential. Eternus believes in making your dreams and goals a reality, and their coaches know just how to do that. Whether you're just starting out or looking to bolster your current transformation, they have you covered. Leveraged by the International Coaching Federation and founded by Chris Wingator, Eternus coaches develop and maintain an effective coaching plan with attainable results. Eternus offers flexible plans and rates to allow all people to benefit from this rewarding creative process. So don't hesitate. If you want to unlock your full potential, begin your journey with Eternus Coaching today. Visit www.eternuslife.com and let Eternus help you manage progress and maintain accountability in achieving your highest potential. Follow them on Instagram and Twitter at Eternus Life. So I have a two-parter question. Um, so after you get data from the labs, you know, from the rats and from everything that you're, all the, all the studies you're doing, what steps happen after that? Like, as far as like going, uh, going to humans, you know, do you, when do you start testing on actual humans? And then the second part of the question is, do you have a hand in coming up with the drugs? that treat the, the addictions? Like, do, do you have, do you sit here and go, I think this is where we should go with this. Let's, let's put more interest into this particular like substance. Like the NAC, the, you know, right. stuff like that. Like NAC. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the NAC was, was all ours oh, in wow. terms of initiating it. Cause NAC is a crummy drug. I mean, when we, when we run a clinical trial and again, I'm not the clinician, so I've just, I've helped get money to fund the clinical trials, but once it moves into the clinic, that's, you know, trained professionals take that over. I'm just kind of the rat and mouse guy that, that, you know, looks at how the brain works. If there's a compound out there that speaks to the mechanism, as there was with NAC, we can move it straight to clinicians. And there's a lot of approvals that they have to get, a lot of paperwork, but it can move into the clinic, a clinical trial pretty quickly. As long as the company that owns the IP on it, if there is a company that owns the IP on it, is willing to collaborate with you. In the case of NAC, like I said, you can almost dig it up in your backyard. It's available at health food stores. So there is no real IP on NAC. And so we could move that very quickly. The other thing that happens is, and this is what uh, the postdoc in my lab, when he took a faculty job, who was uh, one of the discoverers of this whole mechanism from my lab, uh, he started a company to try to develop a better molecule. Okay. And of course, if you synthesize a new molecule that works like NAC, A, it's gonna get into the brain better and it's just gonna be a better drug. I mean, that's the goal, but you also own the intellectual property on it, yeah. which means if, if in fact it's effective, you can make a lot of money on it. So he started a small company to, to develop this. The bad news is just to take it because I got to get this out there. I don't know if you're going to ask me the question. I think I know what you're going to say, but yeah, I think might as well just go into it. Yeah. So NAC is not good for treating relapse. Yeah. So it's, it's in subpopulations. It it is proven to be effective. So there was uh, like adolescent cannabis users. So a cannabis isn't that addictive to start with and adolescents haven't been at it that long. And it works there because for them, the craving is a critical component of why they relapse. If you are a 45-year-old cannabis user and you've been using it for the last 25 or 30 years, 
you don't really have to crave. So we could, it, and that will blunt the craving, but you know, you've got cannabis in your drawer or, you know, your friend's going to come over and they'll bring cannabis with them. And so you'll relapse. And the FDA requires a drug, a compound to prevent relapse in order to be approved to treat addiction. The other subpopulation that it seems to work on is if you're already abstinent, it will help maintain abstinence. But these are already people who have already decided on their own that I'm going to, I'm trying to stop. And so they've probably already got the bottles in the garbage kind of thing. You know, they don't, the drug is out of the house. And so it can help these people control their cravings because craving is a very important reason why they relapse. But if your life is embedded in a drug subculture, you don't need to crave to relapse. It's all around you. It's all around you. So what it turns out is through happenstance, we got a, a grant from the Department of Defense to study substance use disorder in veterans. But we also, because you may know this, substance use disorder is is comorbid in veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. So there's a very high percentage of of veterans who come back that if they have PTSD, they're also going to end up uh, being substance users. And so it's, it's, it's a very high percentage. And if you have both going on, it's very difficult to treat either one. So our, our idea was that we would treat the substance use. And the cool thing was that in, in the VA at MUSC, they run kind of a halfway house situation. Uh, we got people that were comorbid for PTSD and substance use, and uh, they would be abstinent because they were associated with this, this halfway house situation. So we got them to where they had at least two weeks of abstinence before we started them. You know, and sure enough, NAC that took out the craving for drugs. I mean, as it's other people, it's been shown in a lot of places now that it does that, but we weren't putting it together at the time that craving is a lot like intrusive thinking in PTSD. That's, that was a big eye opener because it, it made all the people asymptomatic for PTSD as well. Wow. And one of their, you know, their, anecdotal comments is, you know, sure, I think about it, but I can change, you know, I don't, I don't ruminate on it the way I used to, whatever the trauma was in their life. And so Sudi just got a big grant, a much larger grant to run near 200 people. This was just a small trial with about 30 people in it that, that she and I ran together. And the data's in, you know, it's, it's just being analyzed right now. So it was a five-year okay. grant and they're analyzing it. And I, um, because of my road show, I talk about this. And so I wanted to um, <laughs> get the latest from her. And so, you know, she said, yeah, it looks positive. She said, I could, I could say that publicly, but they don't know, you know, the ins and out of it. So it's, it's going to take a couple months to really crunch all the numbers and find out exactly what aspects were significantly changed by NAC and what wasn't, et cetera. But um, she said, you know, it clearly looks like it's working. So, it, it, it just shows you how it can go. This thing that, you know, we was produced in the rat brain, this little finding to cocaine wound its way through addiction trials and is probably never going to be approved for addiction trials for, for treating substance use disorder because it can't stop relapse. But, you know, because of this sort of accident, we wound up doing veterans that were comorbid for substance use disorder 
and uh, PTSD and found that it worked in PTSD, which caused us to really realize what we were dealing with. And there's a whole group in uh, in Australia run by Michael Burke, who's the, the main investigator there, that has shown positive effects with NAC on depression. No way. Pre- yeah, presumably because it, it blunts the rumination that sl- wow. causes people. And it's just a subpopulation. It's not everybody who's depressed, but PTSD, intrusive thinking is a major trigger in PTSD, period. You know, everybody has intrusive thoughts that has PTSD. It's one of the main triggers. And so that it's probably going to be an effective drug for PTSD. For people that suffer with depression, if they were on like a Zoloft or a, some, some other form of antidepressant, would this sort of replace that? Like, could they take I would take say off? no. Okay. I would say okay. no. Of course, we were all excited in the beginning. We framed it as a, as a cure, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, it turned out it wasn't like most things. Um, <laughs> you know, so we framed it as this can be used. So, for example, Shantix, you've ever heard of that? Yeah, it's yeah. for treating smoking. Yeah. And it can cause abstinence. So it's, it's a replacement therapy. It acts on some of the receptors that nicotine acts on. Okay. And so it's, it, it helps suppress the drive or the motivation to smoke by kind of replacing it, the nicotine. Yeah. Like a nicotine patch does that. Yeah, example. but without nicotine. Right, but that without nicotine and the, and the harmful effects of smoke and everything else. But people, you know, they have like a 75% relapse rate after three to six months. So people don't stay off of the cigarettes. Well, maybe if they took NAC simultaneously, that would, because it would blunt the cravings directly, that would support the abstinence that they achieved with Shantix. We've done some preclinical studies in, in rodents where we mix those two and shown that, yeah, that's, you know, Shantix can take them off the drug itself. They're not using as much. And then the knack will prevent them from relapsing. How much does it affect the, the human? Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, at what point do you go, okay, all these people, do I want them on all these drugs? At, at a certain point, you know, yes, you're doing it to so help people, to help people stop substance abuse. But at some point, when does willpower kick in and it's up to the human to do it without it because of how our brain is wired? Are we all just going to have to be on drugs to combat our the, the way our brain is wired? Understood. Yeah. So is the change that the addictive drugs have produced in your brain permanent? And, yeah. and irrevocable, you're done, you know, once you've made that change. The answer, in my opinion, you know, and there's, it's not something that's easy to study at the level of humans, but in, in my opinion, it's reversible. And it's also not easy to study at the level of rats, because how you reverse it in humans is you get them up on their um, your buprenorphine, if they're opioid addicts or the Shantix, Maybe throw some knack in if it eventually gets used that way. And you maintain therapy. So you help the person undergo the reverse plasticity. So, you know, we, we think thoughts all the time and your brain changes in response to those thoughts and the experiences you have in the world. And so with therapy, I believe you can, you know, it's not easy. It's not easy, but you can probably give them, bring them back to where they have control. So where their willpower in these circumstances, where they're surrounded by drug stimuli that are going to make them relapse, they can develop mechanisms to control themselves. You know, the Alcoholics Anonymous, call the guy, 
that's a mechanism for helping people control themselves. And with, you know, proper therapy, I think people can develop the own, their own sort of cognitive behavioral things that they can think about or start doing that will cause them to deviate from drug craving. And make no mistake about it, you are rewiring your brain. Takes time. When you do that. Yeah. And so that's that's the key until we, you know, now we're getting at the, the heart of like a person who's at the sort of twilight of his career. It's a bummer. You know, we didn't figure out how the brain worked. Yeah. Yeah. You missed it. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, 40 years of, of active research. <laughs> we understand it better. We understand a lot about it. You know, what we found, though, in the end is that it's it's really complex. Yeah. And when you have things like neuropsychiatric disorders, mm -hmm. that involves the organ, yeah, the brain, you know, yeah. the whole brain. It's not like take this drug and, you know, you will no longer have something. We can take away certain symptoms, mm -hmm. like NAC takes away craving. You take an antipsychotic and it takes away a lot of the florid thinking. If you're schizophrenic, you can take Prozac and depending on how depressed you are, it'll blunt the depression, but cure doesn't happen. It, what happens is it gives the person the opportunity because they're no longer suffering from certain symptoms to learn to rewire themselves. Now, some people who aren't that deep, like the adolescent cannabis users I was talking about, they can rewire themselves relatively easily and they get, get involved in other things. And it's, uh, if you take a, somebody who's 45 year old, and they're deep into it. And that's been part of their life in a way that they've, they're embedded in a culture that gets drugs and talks about drugs all the time. They're going to need strong intervention. It's, it's going to take years of therapy yeah. to really fix that. And now a few words from our sponsors. Next page is sponsored by my restaurant, Bay Street Beer Garden. We're located in what was once an old train depot in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. Pretty cool, huh? Our bar and restaurant has beautiful high ceilings, communal tables, and German-influenced high-end bar fare, so it's as close as you can get to an authentic beer hall in the South. At our Bavarian-inspired and Southern-made restaurant, we're all about community, festivities, and uniting the old with the new. So go check out our website for updates on all the things, including live music, brunch parties, vendor markets, and all of our other upcoming events. We can't wait to see y'all! Next page is sponsored by Patrick Properties Hospitality Group. It's no secret that Charleston is one of the top wedding destinations in the world. And I'm thrilled to say Patrick Properties is the premier wedding and event company in the area. Since 1997, PPHG has unveiled five of Charleston's grandest properties and estates, faithfully restored and transformed into exquisite venues for special events. At Patrick Properties, we believe that moments matter and our experienced team is committed to making each one extraordinary with unrivaled service and professional expertise. So if you're looking for a classy venue for your next big event, check out Patrick Properties Hospitality Group on their website or social media. How do you feel like emotional trauma kind of plays into the into to addiction and what ultimately what do you think that kind of ultimately triggers the abuse of drugs and and that lead to addiction? Do you feel like it's genetic like what are the biggest risk factors and how can people avoid before they get to that point? no it's a, it's a great question laura and um wouldn't it be nice if i could just say well this is the cause yeah. but i can't <laughs> you know and so so you know there's uh there's a lot of genetics research going on right now 
And as with most psychiatric disorders, unless there's a very unusual familial component to it, where everybody in the family continually suffers, there is no gene, no single gene that is going to control something like substance use disorder or schizophrenia or depression. It's too complicated. And you can take identical twins and when they grow up, one becomes schizophrenic. There's only a 50% chance that the other one, if they're brought up in different homes, that the other one will be schizophrenic. So that's a lot. That's more than, than like two people that aren't identical twins, you know, so there is a genetic component. But it's not the whole thing. So there's a whole what we call epigenetic component. So how the the experiences you have in life turn on and off the genes that you have. And so some vulnerability genes, whatever they may be, are not were not turned on or else they were turned off in this sibling, whereas the other one, you know, they, they didn't. The genetics is just cataloging tens of thousands of people and ultimately coming up with profiles of genes which we haven't done yet yeah so we don't know this yet it's just giant it's big data you just got to get enough information and we don't have it yet Uh, like if you've got these six out of eight genetic characteristics you have a probability a higher probability of becoming addicted than somebody who only has three out of the eight or something like that and we can't really make those concrete clinical judgments yet so the you touched on what is a critical epigenetic event. So that's now environmental events. And obviously, early childhood stress, you know, adolescent stress, and to a lesser extent, adult stress can turn on and off genes in ways that we're just learning about. Hold Hold the phone. Hold the phone. It can like, I'm so sorry. It can like activate a gene, like trauma can activate a, a dormant gene. It can be, it can activate it. Sure. Yeah. It's like a light switch. That's, that's kind of how, like, when my dad was doing the tobacco trials of trying to explain to me how lung cancer kind of, of work, works in that, you know, there can be somebody that smokes their whole life and they never get lung cancer because they didn't have that, like, predisposed genetic component, whereas there can be somebody who has a gene that, that they smoke, you know, for two years and it flips it you know, after a certain point. Basically, you know, if you can't repair yourself, you're, you're going to develop cancer to the, the constant insult that cigarette smoke yeah. is, is bringing, you know, you just won't be able to. And so, yeah, those are, those are some of the mechanisms that might be involved. This is a little bit of a segue. Sorry. And, and if totally I, if I get off, to, Todd, re, re, go. remind me of the question, <laughs> you know, go, go, go. But, um, you know, this is how I console myself. And I think other neuroscientists probably do something similar. You know, you spend your whole life and, you know, I think we've done, I I, I feel good about everything that we discovered and the, you know, the machinations and where we're headed, you know, cancer, since you brought it up, like the Nixon, President Nixon started, I was around then, started the war on cancer and, you know, created the, like the cancer Institute at the NIH became the biggest Institute in the NIH, and I I believe it still is today. The first 20, even 30 years of research didn't really change chemotherapy very much. That that they just had, you know, you learned a little bit more about how to tweak it and things as you got more experience, but the drugs and the basic principle of 
trying to kill the cancer before you killed other things in your body remained. And that's because we had to learn how a single cell works. We had like teams all over the world studying how a single cell works. How does it regulate itself? How does it signal in and out of the cell to make, make this cell stay healthy and function? And once we started this learning, we learned enough about that's a single cell. We were able to go, oh, let me tweak this very selectively for this type of cancer. And so now we're starting to see cures that are tightly targeted for different cancers. And that's, that's a single cell, you guys. That's, you know, and that's not to trivialize it because it's, it's, but a single cell is very complicated. So the brain has about 20 billion cells in it. And the neurons, which are about 10 billion of those, <clears throat> make about 100 trillion synaptic connections oh, yeah, in a human simple. brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now you've got this whole complex organ and you're trying to understand how an organ works and more importantly, how the organ is undergoes a pathological change such that it leads to uh, a behavioral pathology like substance use disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder or something. It's a big one. It's not, you know, it's, it's going to be very different. This is not to say, Everybody should just give up hope. No, we, it's just like treating cancer. We get better and better, and there's more drugs that, you know, we can attack more symptoms. And then with the therapy, the right. proper therapy, and maybe now, you know, some brain stimulation might help um, and things like that. We can, you know, we can help you, help you recover and right. help you help yourself overcome the psychiatric disorder. So we're getting better. We'll get better at it. But that single pill just go boop. And, you know, it all goes back to the normal is not, it's not great. right. As we get better and better, what do you think the future of treating addiction will look like, like in say 20 or 30 years? I mean, with all the advancements in technology, all we're learning about cells, all we're learning about the brain, what do you anticipate and what do you want to happen? Um, I anticipate certainly in your lifetimes that we will have developed the technologies. They're all like sort of beta technologies now to very selectively stimulate without opening a person's head very selectively use focal stimulation on specific cell groups in the brain that we, we know are very important and undergo these pathological changes and be able to actually stimulate, inhibit, and as the person is experiencing things, you know, basically you're in a therapy session and you can, you can kind of dial in the proper plasticity to help this person start learning that natural rewards and other things that are important in life can supersede their drug. And that's, that's what's going to happen. But you have to, I think it's going to be a long time, if, if ever, that you can actually go in and go, okay, here's the new memories, just put them in there. Yeah. And now you're no longer addicted. You're now this other person that never encountered drugs. Yeah. I, I I just don't think that's going to happen, okay. but I think we will get very selective in our abilities. But what you just said is some AI shit. Like yeah. that is like some, yeah, that, it is. That is, like, that is, I have goosebumps everywhere yeah, from I'm what one, you just said. Yeah. I'm wondering. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Like, cause I mean that, that, like, if you think about it, that going back to glutamate, the sexy topic of glutamate, that it seems like it would be almost impossible to 
you know, without literally getting rid of somebody's actual core memories, if you will, almost like, what is that movie with um, Jim Carrey? Total, oh, the, I thought you said Total Recall. No, the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, the, um, the Spotless Mind. What was the, the one? Oh, had, Eternal like, Sunshine of the Spotless yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's almost like you'd have to do that to get rid of any trigger or craving and then add in the glutamate that's now like reinforced it and made it a memory. Yeah. So I mean, you have to learn. Yeah. And the goal is to help people. You don't want to go in and, you know, completely change a person's, but that's what I worry about when we get so advanced, like you could have people that are not centered as a human and can be, and want to erase people's memories for other reasons versus well, I think that's what Peter's kind of saying, though, you know, like the, the importance of that it's a holistic treatment. You do think there's a very unnecessary aspect of combining therapy with any of these treatments because there's no other way to. But there's no other than, way. How are you going to regulate it once the technology is out there? Oh, oh man. Well, you know, you can go back. Um, you know, slippery. So I'm sorry. I what, we won't deviate anymore. I hate it. it. Uh, no, but it's fine. <laughs> It can be, it can, it, it's true for any technology, you know, it's true yeah. for any technology. So now people can drive at, you know, a hundred miles an hour and lo and behold, some people hit a tree. Yeah. You know, if they were on a horse, the likelihood that they would die from that collision would be substantially lower, but we right. cars, you know, and so what, what'll happen it'll, is it'll eke its way in. Mm-hmm. You know, so for example, how I could see it getting into the substance use field. If you have, um, if you're uh, an alcohol use disorder to the point where you've destroyed your liver. So now you're, you become a candidate for a liver transplant. Well, no, you don't. If you can't stop using alcohol for at least six months. So in a person who's seriously addicted, you know, they, they can't stop. This is a zone that's life-saving. And so this is a zone where you can potentially try out some of these newer things. It's just like, I mean, cancer research, if it's a glioblastoma that you know somebody's going to die from, it's easier to try uh, an experimental drug or something to try to shrink the, the tumor than it is if you've got, you know, leukemia that you've, we've got ways you can recover from, then it's a much more complicated process. So I think they're, you know, psychiatric disorders, people don't think of them that way, but they're life threatening. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at the suicide rates in the United States, that kind of speaks for itself, right? Naomi Judd, look at Naomi Judd. She just, she just killed herself. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that that was what the ultimate cause of death was. She, she shot herself. Oh my goodness. It just came out yesterday. Oh, okay. That just came out yesterday and not completely out of the loop. Right. Yeah. She shot herself. So that's awful. but yeah, yes, so it is. you're absolutely right. It's dangerous. So it's. I think that kind of answers your question, Todd, of like, well, this is kind of scary. And do people, we're basically treating drug addiction with drugs, but it's like at the end of the day, it, it you know, the means can, you know, kind of justify what we're trying to do. Like, the goal is recovery is what yeah. I hear. The goal mm-hmm. is recovery. And and to be so in a good place. Like, you know, I, 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 I personally, as somebody who, is medicated for anxiety and fibromyalgia. Like I, I have kind of a personal, you know, this battle sometimes of, I don't want to be taking this medication. I want it to be just naturally as pain-free as everybody else in the world, as less anxious as everybody else in the world. But 
you know, there are ways, yeah, I can, I can go and meditate all the time and I can, um, you know, try to be easy on my body or whatever. But I mean, at a certain point, it's a quality of life issue. And I think there's a stigma about taking medications because of the, the addictive aspects of other drugs that, that I think that it ultimately, you know, it's a balance. Like you've got to know when it's harming or hurting. Well, there's stigma and there's judgment. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's like, just use your willpower. You can stop yeah, it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like and I'm that's what stop. people, they, yeah, people don't get it. Yeah. You, you like can't, I can't you know? stop the fact that I'm, you know, having shooting pain and every limb of my body or, or having a panic attack. It's just not possible. Like, but I do agree that the, the therapeutic aspect is important as well, but there are certain things that I just feel, I mean, it's something I'm just passionate about. You just got me a little bit heated because I know, I understand your concerns, Todd, but it's like, I'm, I'm so pro medication because I would not be able to be doing this right now. Oh, I didn't mean to, no, look, I take, I'm literally on antidepressants every day. I, they've saved my life. I I am completely hundred percent for medication. I just wish I didn't have to have as it. someone with a chemical imbalance, I wish I didn't have the yeah. chemical imbalance yeah. that I have to treat with a fucking pill. Yeah. You know what it I mean? It doesn't cure you. It just, it just sublimates yeah. the exactly. imbalance. Yeah. Exactly. And so what if, what if I could tell you, you know, I can put these five little mini electrodes in different parts of your brain and they will feed into a little microprocessor that's you know, under your, under your skull. So it's not like sitting on top of your head. And these electrodes will do two things. One, they can read your brain and tell when you're starting to go in to a depression. And they can also put out whatever the right stimulation is to those parts of the brain. And you won't slide into depression. In other words, it'll capture it as it's just, you aren't even hardly conscious that you're starting to slip in, but it has been programmed to recognize that this is, you're starting a slide into a depressive state and there's a feedback and it it prevents it. So there's already uh, things in epilepsy can do that, you know? So you, you drop an electrode into the epileptic focus. So the part of the brain that starts, you know, um, becoming hyper excitable yeah. and then, then, then it can spread potentially to the rest of the brain and you have a, a status epilepticus. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, it basically feeds up to a little chip and the chip can watch this area, monitors it. And if in fact there's a seizure that's starting, cause it'll start, you know, with just some spiking, it doesn't like just come on full blown typically. And then it'll just blast that area. It'll send down some current and knock it out. It'll like flatten out that spiking and so the person never has a seizure is this sort of the idea that like i have a friend who's diabetic that has something that's like sort of like implanted in them and when when it goes off ding 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 your blood you're about to you know your blood sugar's low put it is this sort of the same idea but it's actually like an implant that just puts out current yeah, it yeah, sounds almost exactly. more like a pacemaker, exactly you know, like kind of a, like pacemakers mm-hmm. keep your heart beating at a certain pace. That's the whole point, only for your brain in a way, right? like to make yeah. sure you don't go. And this is being, this is 
currently being Todd is like losing his mind. It's like people have this in the, their brains. The electro thing. Yeah. There's clinical trials. I don't know. I honestly, it may be out uh, and, and available, but they're with the epilepsy thing. Yeah. There's clinical trials. There was, it was going on at MUSC when I was, you know, co I mentioned I was co-chair with the neurosurgery department. Yeah. There, there was, that was one of the grants that was to study the, the beta test that sort of, seizure control i don't know what happened with it yeah. honestly you know but it's that's the idea i don't know how appropriate it is to say this and i know we're talking about trauma but i i probably will need a drink after this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> he's like now i think todd you is know, teetering it's an on, todd you're okay yeah no yeah. todd's teetering on the um needing antidepressants <laughs> but also afraid we're all going to become robots scenario Correct. right now and it's scaring him to death 100 percent don't go anywhere because we'll be right back after a few words from our sponsors. Next page is sponsored by Rogers, Patrick, Westbrook, and Brickman Law Firm, located in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. RPWB attorneys are experienced, respected, and tenacious. The common thread of their work is that they help those who have been wronged. They often lead class action lawsuits and multi-district litigations against large corporations. So they're the ones fighting the big guy. And people tend to notice their attorneys, including my dad and future guest, are highly regarded by both peers and adversaries and were voted best law firm in 2021 in U.S. News and World Report. Their proudest moments are when they help ordinary, hardworking Americans who have been harmed through no fault of their own. So if you need attorneys with experience, innovation and determination, give RPWB Law Firm a call or visit their website at rpwb.com. Just to kind of go back to the, the dopamine discussion, because we talked about this uh, yesterday, and, and I've been reading this book, Dopamine Nation, which very much kind of, it, it, it has somewhat, a, I think, a differing view of addiction than, than some, like, from all the different books I've read, it's almost like everybody has a kind of a slightly different view of what addiction is really is and what it looks like in dopamine nation it's almost like it seems by uh, anna lemke dopamine yeah, nation yes. by anna lemke yeah yep. that she kind of talks about how we are an, a nation that's addicted to dopamine and i just kind of want to hear how do you as a neuroscientist define addiction and do you think that there are only certain drugs that we can really be addicted to like for example she like says like marijuana is addictive or, or digital media and, and social media just kind of come to light recently with, you know, some movies like Social Dilemma and stuff like that. Like, what are your feelings about that perspective? My perspective on it is that the symptoms of, of substance use disorder are higher up in terms of behaviors that people manifest than the reward experience itself. So the reward experience, I mean, she, you know, she and everybody, they're 100% correct. The re a rewarding experience is tagged to a squirt of dopamine. And, you know, some people seek out stressful situations because it's tagged with a, a squirt of dopamine. As long as it's not at a pathological level, the dopamine is not going to produce the by itself the permanent changes in the brain. I mean, you could... If take a person and just make them experience something over and over again. And so there's always going to be this dopamine squirt. And you might be able to create 
uh, recreates addiction to some extent. If we take a rat and we immobilize them for two hours, we look in their brain three weeks later, it has characteristics. So it's, in other words, it's lasted a long time in the glutamate system. It has characteristics of an animal that took cocaine for three weeks, Mm. you know? So, so you can have these very strong experiences and we assume that's what's happening when in a combat situation or in a rape and that can produce changes that make you vulnerable the dopamine itself only is a tool it's not it's not the vulnerability yeah and so to say you know we're a nation addicted to dopamine i mean i guess what she's getting at is the is the the sociology that everybody's always looking for a good mm. time or something, I guess you know, and so. what's the next, what's the next thing. And, and there's some truth in it because as I mentioned, you do, you do the same thing over and over again. Like I go in to the refrigerator and get the Milky Way bar pretty soon. I don't, dopamine is not released. I just know it by habit. It's all I've learned it. I've learned how to go to the refrigerator. So I get a little feeling like, Oh, I, I, I could use a Milky Way bar right now. And I don't have to secrete dopamine because I know, how to get it. The dopamine is a tool that yeah. the brain uses, increase the importance of something. So your the rest of your brain will code how you got it yeah. or how you stayed away from it. So the next time it comes, you can deal with it more effectively. Do you see social media or something like that being addictive? Like, does it change your brain yeah, so much? Yeah, I, I, I can see that it, it would be habit forming. Okay. See, that's you know, what I'm it's wondering. It's different. Yeah. I think it's very different than addiction. That's my own feeling. I mean, we can have a, a, a rodent take sucrose. I don't, you know, I don't know what else you could do to a rat a biological reward. Um, some people have used sex um, in yeah. rodents and, you know, they don't manifest the same brain changes okay. that addictive drugs produce, but you know that the sex or the, the sucrose has the capability of releasing dopamine. Now, maybe if you made it different each time, which is what the social media does. Yeah. So, so social media kind of tweaks it this way. They don't keep showing you the same thing because you're, you'll switch over. Yeah. You're not going to, you're not going to look at the same thing the over Milky and over again. You already know how to get the Milky Way bar. Exactly. So, you know, you, but this, so here's a device that you can access little squirts of dopamine with. Wow. Okay. And so I think that, I think that there's truth that that can become habit forming. If I take it away from you, you know, you might crave it a little bit. You know, you might go, gosh, I wish I, I'm kind of bored. I wish I had, I could get a tweak of dopamine now. You haven't lost the ability to have clean, clear cognition about what's important. So, you know, you're, you're playing your little dopamine game with social media. A, a tiger comes through the door. You will orient. Mm-hmm. towards that much more salient sim- stimulus. If it's an addictive drug and you're busy, like really closing in on your drug, you might not, I mean, if you actually saw the tiger or it started approaching you, you I'm sure you would respond. Yeah. But, you know, you're really, maybe not, you're, maybe it's, a, the tiger. it's a different tunnel. <laughs> it's a different rabbit hole than looking at stuff on your phone. Yeah. You are, you are like, you're essentially almost actively blocking out other stimuli so that you can go get the drug. You know, it's kind of like, I mean, an example that you could use, which may be a natural situation that some of this circuitry would come into play that I have a pathology. So you have a baby, as I know, you've had baby. And when you're, you know, you finally get the baby to sleep and you're in the living room and you're 
pull up the newspaper or whatever, and you're, you're finally relaxing. All of a sudden, the baby starts screaming bloody murder. Sounds like they're dying. You, you pop up, you charge in, you break your toe on the door jam, you step on a piece of glass on the way in. None of that makes any difference. You don't even notice yeah. that that's happened. You don't even necessarily register it. Mm-hmm. You go in and then you, you pick up the baby. And once you realize that, you know, it's not choking or every, everything's okay, then you go, wow, you know, my foot really hurts. And then, you know, and you look and you see that you've, you've cut yourself. Okay, so, so it was so important to you to find out and make sure that that baby was okay, that very natural, important stimuli that were, should have been highly salient <laughs> didn't even register with you because you were tightly focused. So think of addiction, somebody who's really got themselves worked up into a state of craving. It's, it's difficult for them to be deterred out of that. I mean, I've seen, you know, I've seen my own grandkids, you know, it's like, you got to kind of poke them yeah, sometimes. Yeah. They don't respond to your voice, but you know, <laughs> then we, then we go off and we play catch or something. Yeah. And it's not like, it's not like they're, 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 they're in this tunnel and they're thinking yeah, about the glutam- it constantly. The glutamate yeah. hasn't taken over yet. Uh, it's and the dopamine release you're getting is physiological. So I do have like kind of a fo- quick follow-up to that. So what are your kind of views or what have you kind of found with, some of these studies with cannabis, do you feel that it is in that category of addictive or no? I, I think uh, cannabis is <laughs> cannabis is definitely habit forming. Okay. And I think when we, not, I think when we do use it and we, you know, crack in the, into the rat head, yeah, you know, we can see some of the enduring changes that we see with the other addictive drugs there, but we can't see all of them. It's not as profound, and but we can and we can make the learned associations with cues and the drug and things. But you know we can do that with sucrose too. And so, if, if I had to bet, is you know if you take the diagnostic criteria that uh, psychiatrists use to tell you you have substance use disorder, it will be addictive. You will be you will develop cannabis use disorder. There will be people who do that. I think in percentage wise is going to be on par or a little less than alcohol use disorder. Yeah. So the percentage, you know, everybody can use alcohol and because it's so widely available and cannabis pretty much that way, even if it's officially illegal where you live. So it's widely available and <laughs> why don't most people get addicted? Yeah. Yeah. You know, they don't. If cocaine were that widely available or heroin, oh, well, yeah. we found, we found out, you know, opioids became widely available yeah. prescription albeit prescription but they be they flooded our society and so many people became addicted developed opioid use disorder it's so much more addictive than something like cannabis so cannabis isn't a good thing and i mean in the sense that it can it can create addictive symptoms but it's not it's not nearly as addictive in my opinion yeah. as the other drugs one of the the big the big bad thing about cannabis where it's legal right now is unlike having a measuring device like you blow into a device and it can tell you tell if you've been using alcohol mm-hmm. so we don't yet have a quick test yeah for or do you have cannabis and it's because thc the active ingredient is so different from alcohol it, it depots in your body yeah and you know in fatty tissues and stuff so if you've just if you went through a, a five-day binge with cannabis and two days later you're driving 
your blood is still going to have cannabis, THC in it. And so even though you're totally fine um, in terms of your driving, you would register as being under the influence. So it's that's probably the biggest problem with making cannabis legal is if somebody is under the influence, obviously they're not as safe in operating mm-hmm. a vehicle, but except for, of course, they try, they're driving really yeah, slow. Yeah, I was say, they're but, not uh, necessarily, <laughs> they're just causing accidents from not moving as fast enough. Right, right. And just not paying attention, you know. Yeah. So anyway, that to me, that's the biggest problem with making cannabis legal. Otherwise, it's, in my opinion, yeah, it should be legal. Like you know, the good there are sociological, the there are sociological consequences. Preach. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. What do you think are the biggest failings in the medical field right now? And you've mentioned the way that clinical trials are structured right now is kind of extremely problematic. How so? And how can we fix it? Uh, you may have heard there's a whole movement in, in all diseases, whether they're psychiatric or infections, called personalized medicine. So what that means is you learn enough, you get enough um, biomarkers, and you know, it could be genetics, it could be some epigenetic things, it could be something that's circulating in the blood and depending on how high it is. So for example, a PSA test um, is a biomarker for um, whether you have a prostate cancer. You know, and it's just you pick it up in your blood, and if it starts going up, you've got prostate cancer. For complex disorders, you know, there's all different kinds of people manifesting different behaviors. So now you come along with a drug to treat something that's that complex, and it fixes, you know, one or two of the things. So, you know, a lot of people are still going to have substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. We have to understand what each person is and what the triggers are for them. And, and be able to ameliorate a lot of the different symptoms individually. And then you can design a cocktail, you know, and a cocktail could include as time goes on, you know, brain stimulation or something. Okay. So that's, that's my perception on where the treatment of especially complex behavioral disorders are going. And the FDA and clinical trial, nobody, nobody gets that. I mean, they talk about it. Yeah. And they are talking about it just by virtue of the fact that the FDA, so if somebody uses half as much cocaine in response to a treatment, that you can't approve it. They have to stop cold. That's the only thing that the FDA will approve. Well, that's, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. You know, and so it's, mm-hmm. there's a whole restructuring of how we think of clinical trials and recognizing that, you know, how do we determine that it worked only in 25 out of 200 people? And so when you do the normal statistics, that's not significant because yeah. you also had 25 people who got placebo that got better or something. But maybe those people have some kind of biomarker that you, you know, something you fixed in them that is a given them the control over their behavior that, you know, and so it's, it's the new frontier of trying to personalize these things. And we don't have the tools to really make anything super personal. We don't have enough different kinds of drugs. We don't understand about how the brain works well enough yeah. to really, you know, mix it up and give you exactly what's going to likely help you. But as we collect more data, more information, we'll start going, yeah, you have these symptoms. I'm going to give, give you these three drugs or, you know, some order you take this one for two weeks and then we're going to switch you to this one because people that have your characteristics really respond well to this kind of combination. But how do you discover that combination? Yeah. Unless you really open up the ability 
to use these drugs and combination of these drugs in clinical trials. And it's right now, it's super hard to get stuff like that approved. Yeah. To say nothing of the fact you might have three different companies Why? that own Is the it a liability IP. issue. Yeah, it's too scary. Yeah. You know, there's could be drug interactions and the IP might be owned like Pfizer might own one of the drugs, yeah. Merck owns another one, and Abbott owns another one. And you got to get the IP organized with all of those groups and everybody has to have a piece of the pie. Yeah. You know, so it it, it just becomes difficult. Yeah. And people are trying to cut through that. It's difficult. And it, it all comes down to how much risk you're willing to take to go into a new paradigm. Yeah. Because you might, you know, you might, you will undoubtedly stumble on some combinations that have a bad side effect. You know, it's like, it's kind of like what you were worried about AI. You know, I mean, <laughs> we may make you have, somebody has to start, it has to start somewhere. Yeah. And we will learn from doing it that, ooh, you know, that was definitely not a good outcome. Yeah. <laughs> from that, that stimulation. And, you know, we do that now with deep brain stimulation for depression, for example. You know, there are people are putting electrodes in right now, and sometimes it works, sometimes it flips somebody into mania, sometimes it doesn't do anything. Wow. And, you know, people are actively trying to understand when does it work and what are the characteristics so we can better predict exactly where it has to go and exactly who you are so that this type of stimulation will be effective. It's scary, the trial and error nature of exploring how the brain works and trying to put it into humans. There's, there's nothing that is risk-free about that. Yeah. But it's almost like you have to do it to, you know, you're going to miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take, you know, um, given the suicide rates in the United States, I would say we, we need to push forward yeah. aggressively there. You know, you can look at any other disorder that kills people, heart disease, cancer. You look at the last 20 years, and the prevalence of that has gone down. So there are fewer, proportionally, fewer people dying from all sorts of disorders. Suicide was stable with the opioid thing. It's, it's actually now, it's gone up. Yeah, on the rise. So there is no success yet on attenuating the proportion of people in America who commit suicide, a lethal outcome of psychiatric disorders. You know, and say, we need to do something. Yeah. We need to move on this. You know, it's it's a, it's definitely an unmet need of our society, of our civilization, really. You know, it's an unmet need. Well, I think that's something that we definitely, I, I feel like during COVID, we all kind of banded together to get these vaccines out as fast as possible. So maybe there, if, you know, there's more awareness of this going on and, and, and more neuroscientific labs that are coming out than there were in 1997, we might be able to see some change in that area hopefully without robots coming out of it but yeah and i mean honestly we could talk to you we could talk to you about all of this for for hours ever um but i think we are like now coming up on one of our a a just record-breaking links of of a podcast (laughs) in order to give you your life back um we have one more question that we usually do and or it's a tradition on here it's a question of the day um which we will also answer um you know once you're out of the room because you know it's embarrassing i'm just kidding but we want to ask you since i know that you have traveled everywhere in the world pretty much either with work or with your family or on your own um, what was your absolute favorite place to visit and why? 
I think Ethiopia was my favorite place. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Why is that? It's just, it's an extremely culturally diverse um, country. Uh, it's there's almost no tourists, especially now since they've created more internal strife. Um, and you can go in the in the north. You've got you know the the Christian dominated culture in the east. You've got the Islamic culture, and what I found to be especially like what is the best thing that I've ever traveled through is in the south. So near the the Kenya Sudan uh, Ethiopian border, it's tribal, and so there's you know there's almost no tourism, and it's people still live in in tribal units. And, you know, when we were down there, really the only other cars we saw, because there had been a famine, this was probably about eight years ago, were the blue UN, you know, Jeeps kind of going back and forth. And visiting the tribes down there, it's what I, what anybody who did that, you see things that are going extinct in human civilization. You know, these are people living a lifestyle and, you know, in the, the really remote tribes, um, often there were almost no adolescents. You know, in other words, they would be there long enough to go. One of them we went to, and all the men were gone, and boys, and they were all in a stockade doing a, doing circumcisions. It was a circumcision ceremony. Um, but once those kids, and this is not, of course, universal, but once those kids become teenagers, they go to Addis Ababa. They, you know, they know enough now about what the rest of the world is like that they're dissatisfied with the cultural possibilities mm-hmm. that they have in their small unit. Yeah. And so I see that those are, you know, by the time my grandkids can make a trip there, I doubt it, you know, maybe there'll be, you know, you could, you sign up and you go in and they, you know, different tribes will do performances for you or something, but you will not be invited in to just kind of sit and hang out yeah. and watch daily life in these, in these culture, in these, these tribal units. Um, the only place that I've been that might sustain that longer was Mongolia. Yeah. Well, they're, they're so we pretty did with, with, Yeah. Ali and I did a canoe trip, you know, with this German expat. He's the only guy who canoed in Mongolia. He lived, <laughs> he'd married a, a Mongolian woman and he lived in, in uh, Ulaanbaatar. Anyway, he had a little website. So he, we, seven days through the middle of nowhere down this river and uh, we would camp next to family units that were yurts, you know, and they had yeah. their motorcycle and their solar panels. So they were technologically keeping up with things. Um, but there were lots of adolescents in the family units. I mean, these things were not breaking apart. They were very functional. Yeah. You know, even though the kids, every winter, the kids would go off to uh, um to schools. So, so the, the Russians, the Soviet Union did this. They made all the kids go to school. And now it's just a matter of course. In the winter, when there's nothing you can really do with the animals except keep them alive, um, you don't graze them all over the place, the kids are gone. They're away from, from their, their winter yurt, yeah. and they're in, uh, they're in a school. Wow. And so even though they're getting educated, they come back yeah. to these. And so this is I don't know what the secret is, but this is a, a, a cultural trait of this particular culture. I don't see it disintegrating quickly. Some of the other ones, it's they're just disintegrating. You know, it's uh, it's so. I think 
travel now if you want to go to Ethiopia. Uh, yeah. yeah, it sounds uh, like yeah, your yeah. your favorite places are almost kind of like you like the the ethnography of it, like kind of the stu- you're still kind of studying it as a scientist in a way, and then those oh, aspects. 100%. Yeah, yeah, you're 100%. a scientist. What is, you're what's constantly possible? doing research yeah. on everything. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why it's I'm so addicted. awesome to talk to you. Because, <laughs> you're addicted. Yeah, you're addicted to that. It's definitely, this is not a habit. habit. This is an addiction. I think it's a habit. Right. Um, yeah. Well, we can't thank you enough for coming on here today. This is like so, ed- uh, I mean, uh, I know I learned, I learned a lot. so much. <laughs> my goodness. And I, I have 100% I am, my pleasure. Yeah. 100%. And I really enjoyed it. You guys are very insightful questions. I mean, and it's well, really uh, led me to places that I don't often take myself. So oh. I, I really appreciated the, the interchange. Of course. Yeah. You're welcome Thank back you. anytime. Yeah, of course. We're going to have to All get right. some updates I on, I on, on, on brain technology <laughs> and whatnot. Make sure. Make exactly. Let me know the AI calm, is coming. All right. Well, All have right. a wonderful rest of your afternoon and we will see you later. All right. Thanks again. I'll see you guys. Okay. Bye. Okay, Todd. What were your thoughts? Laura? Are you more scared or less scared than when we started? I'm I'm just, it's because he's the dude. He's the dude that Mm -hmm. does the research. He knows what's coming down the pike. And so it was, it was startling, but educational but terrifying (laughs) and (laughs) yet enlightening yet stress inducing but you know I I do I mean what did you think I mean I I thought it was awesome just for one because I've I you know I I've known his his children and them the whole family for so long and but I've never really known exactly what he does you know it's mm-hmm. like i've had this kind of like well i knew he got rats addicted to coke but that was honestly it, it was surprising to find out that he's not the one that's actually doing that but there was i knew it was going to be interesting i didn't realize how fascinating how i li- we literally could have sat here and talked to him for hours about this because he's a he is he's literally like the dude. I, mean, I have he, so he, many, like, there's so many questions and then just can go on and on and on. But like the, the things, the main takeaways that I really liked from that discussion was that one, that I think that we are getting closer or at least like focusing on, on psychiatric stuff more than, because that, that has been a, been a big reason why I'm into the brain in general is because yeah, there's lots of medical uh, biological things that are affect people every day, cancer, heart attacks, all of that, but that we're all kind of all linked. The, uh, everything is connected and that there are so many behavioral things and psychological things that, that, that feed into that. And to find out that they're doing all this research and yeah, it may not stop addiction, but we find out that it can help PTSD and, and depression and all these other things that, are some things that lead to addiction. So in a, in on a circuitous, circuitous kind of way, it is figuring out how to, you know, cure addiction. I know he doesn't, he's very humble kind of in the way he talks about it. Like as if he's not doing this amazing like, he's, work. He's doing the Lord's work. But he is doing no, the he, Lord's work. He, you know? Literally. No, but I mean, yeah, I completely agree with you. The one, the one takeaway I had was yes, all of that agreed, agreed, agreed. But the other takeaway was the when he was talking about doing the implant yeah, that yeah, can no, actually that. send send out 
you know, uh, basically dopamine or whatever you need. If you're in a depressive state, it can literally send out, or if you're epileptic, you know, it can, it can, it can help, you know, let you know that, you know, a seizure is coming or whatever. Yeah. And, and it's just that to or me. Stop it altogether. I mean, yeah. And your, your comparison to the pacemaker was, was spot on because, mm. and that actually made it less scary when you said that. I would think that's why I brought it up. I thought it might make yeah. you feel a little better because I was like, <laughs> it no, it's not really like, cause my, uh, you know, I know people that have diabetic, like the, the, the alarm thing that tell yeah. you, yeah, yeah. but they're not actually doing anything to help. Like they're not going to minister insulin right you this whereas, actually does both yeah whereas this is something that's like in you that will block like the synapses from doing what you don't want them to if do we have the technology to do that and that's happening uh, I, I, that's we, this- we're in 20 years i, I laura like uh, we are I, just, I, I and you know i know you had suggested a question of the day about if you could go back in time to any any time yeah. would it be and the only reason that i changed that was because i i think that ultimately you know peter for sure is would probably say sometime in the future you know don't you think correct kind of like 100 percent. we we want the the amazing the the fact that we've come so far just with like chemotherapy or or any other kind of more biologically uh, related like ment or not just mental but your overall health like imagine <laughs> what will be going on in twenty or thirty years it's nuts. exactly well and the fact when we when we got offline he actually brought up with us that we are AI yeah you and I, I are actually AI recorded that so we might add it in this might be a three part <laughs> series. <laughs> But yeah, it, it literally like that we are AI, that we are, we are a machine that is incredibly complex and we can, we can learn information and, and spew out information. And that we will learn from AI. And that we will learn from AI. Exactly. When we give that AI the data and program that AI, it will then tell us things we don't know about the universe. Uh, That is just a little. (sighs) I know you you mentioned you want like. Uh, a drink after this, I'm like, I don't know. A part of me is or, like, or meditation. One yeah, or I was the about other, to say, something. I was like, you know, a part of me is like, man, to even just like fathom any of this, maybe I should take some shrooms or something. But then I might just <laughs> lose it. <laughs> but I tell you, it is, it is. He was so fascinating, and what a great guest to have on the podcast. I'm really glad that he agreed to do this. I mean, I, yeah. I, I didn't think that he wouldn't, but I'm very grateful to him and his entire family. He's such a rock star and so, so, um, humble. Yeah. We didn't even get to it, but his, his wife is a therapist and they, they, they work in conjunction on some things as far as that. That's why he's so passionate about like, this is a holistic, you know, this is a, well, he's saying it all, like you said earlier, it all goes together. Mm-hmm. Like the psychiatric, the psychiatrist aspect or the psychiatry aspect of mental health and the brain and what, how the brain reacts to trauma and then how it reacts to certain medications well, to help combat was, the trauma. That was a huge thing. I thought that you, that you kind of had a realization when he was talking about the genes that can mm-hmm. flip on and off of uh, the fact that I, I didn't know this, that childhood trauma could flip a gene to cause like uh, schizophrenia or something that that yeah 
I mean, that makes me scared as all hell about being well, a parent. Mother. Yeah. yeah, I'm just like, well, now I need to go find them and put them in a bubble and make sure that nothing flips <laughs> any genes. Like, no. But, you know, as we know, we're all human and exactly. choices get made. And I thought it was interesting, too, that he brought up the twins thing since he also has right. twins. They're not identical, so you can't kind of do the same. Oh, fraternal. But they're fraternal, but... um you know, that, that is an amazing kind of area of study that you can watch. Because I've seen a lot of that with even um, gay and, and, and lesbian, like that doing studies of within genetic stuff. So I think. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a gene. I mean, yeah. we, we are predispositioned. Yeah. You know, I, 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 you know, was singing show tunes in the womb. So, you know, <laughs> we, we de- I came out being like, <laughs> hey, world, here I am, you know. Hello, <laughs> so. Dolly. Well, he, um, I think of, you know, we, we have some great guests on this podcast, but this is one of those that I'm going to personally promote the crap out of because it was so good. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing too, is that he is kind of so humble that I feel like he's not going to promote this because this is just what he does. You know, this is his every day, which is to us like mind blowing and crazy and like exciting. But yeah, I want this to get out to the masses. Every, everybody needs to go check out the Medical University of South Carolina. They've got they're doing some incredible work over there. They are. Um, so, Huge but fan uh, myself. thank you, Doctor Peter Kalivas. Doctor Peter, he told us specifically we did not have to call him Doctor Kalivas throughout the interview. So, if anybody <laughs> out there thinks that we were being <laughs> disrespectful, we were not. We asked. We asked. <laughs> um, and speaking of asking, I'm going to go ahead and ask you the question of the day then. Which, okay. you know, now I feel after his answers, I'm going to be sad. But, um, <laughs> you know, you also have traveled all over the world. Yes. Um, yes. So what's your absolute favorite place that you've been and why? Honestly, for me, it was New Zealand. Um, I went Stop deep sea fishing it. in New That's Zealand. Fine. And it was, was it really? Was it really? <laughs> I'll try to think it, of something else. We, I, I caught salmon. And, um, or snaps, you know, not salmon, not salmon. Oh. I caught snapper. And, um, yeah, I did. I caught, I caught, I was, you, you know, such I, a man. I, I was like, Hello, hey. I'm catching fish here. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, my, <laughs> I gotta tell you something. Something yeah. just popped into my brain because Margaret Cho did a thing many years ago. The comedian Margaret Cho yeah, did a thing her. where she said, where she said, you know, if, if men had, you know, periods you would be you know like a menstrual period you would be finding like they would not be clean about it we would be using like old socks yeah and then she's like yeah. but if gay men had a period mm. what if like but but men would be like hey you got a tampon in your truck like, <laughs> i don't know why that maybe because it didn't mean manly getting getting the snapper i don't yeah, know yeah you're like hey. hey hey you got a line in that you gotta you gotta you got uh, a liner bait. you got a panty <laughs> you got liner in there Exactly. Well, a, what about you? What about flow. you? What, what exactly? What about you? <laughs> oh my God. How oh, did we we've get on a this tangent. whole thing no, broke our brain. Um, no. Uh, and I, now you, where, where, you know, where, where would you like to go and why? Where's your, where's your favorite place to travel to? I mean, I, I was going to say New Zealand, but, and, and I still stand by it. It's the most gorgeous. gorgeous. I, think, I think part of it is almost the uh, similar reasons. I mean, it's not tribal or anything, but that, that Peter had of that it's, it's kind of its own ecosystem, you know, that it, it's conf- it's separated. It's isolated a little bit from the rest of the world. And then it has, you know, you, for the South Island, at least, you can go to uh, north where it's the beach and, and everything is 
uh, warm and there's a wine country, and then you can go to the south where there's uh, fjords and snowboarding, yep. and it's all obviously flipped upside down because, you know, southern hemisphere stuff. But um, I, I don't know. It just was... It was so gorgeous, and I would definitely go back. And I'd say only the only second thing to that would probably be um, in Italy, just in general, because yeah. I'm obsessed. Oh God, yeah. Because I'm just, Italy's incredible. I was supposed to be Italian, and it, I just was born the whitest person ever. And, and <laughs> uh, but I, I both both are are awesome places, and uh, you know maybe you and I will have to take a trip to Ethiopia. Here soon. Go sit, sit in the tribes. Can yeah, you imagine? before they you, all disappear. We would be like, so do y'all have like a fan or like, <laughs> um, I'm going to need a sound machine tonight to sleep. Do, do you have a Keurig? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they probably just like snort like caffeine up the nose. Who knows? Oh, yeah. Well, I would too if I was there with them. I know. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, thank you. Thank you so much to Dr. Peter Kalivas. Yes, we appreciate you, you, Dr. Peter. We had the best time. And thank you, Todd, for being on here with me. And I can't wait till next time. Me too. All right. Till then. Bye. Bye.